You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com, and joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, um, I guess it would not be accurate to say that the Co-Main Event Podcast is at 100% this week. No, you look like hell. I'm going to start us off that way. You look terrible. Well, I, I have a stomach flu. Yeah, you seem pretty low energy. And I have had two migraine headaches in the last, say, three or four days, which I have not had since I was a teenager. Suddenly, they back. Uh, That's related to the stomach flu? No, I'm just listing it among okay. various ailments that could prevent the podcast from being at 100%. And we haven't even gotten to you yet. That's right. Aku, you, you basically are working on a pile of trash neck all the time now. That's right. And you just informed me that you have a hacking cough. It's pretty bad, and I'm going to tell you right now, there's no way I get through this entire podcast without at least one coughing fit, which I know is just going to annoy the hell out of you. So should we say that all of the people out there in podcast land should drink each time they hear you cough? That'd be fun. That'd be a fun thing to do. Sickness podcast drinking game? Sure. Because you know everyone out there is boozing it up as they listen to this. Especially the people who are at work. Yeah. Or Primarily during their workers. commute. Yes. Uh, I think maybe the takeaway here is that we deserve a lot of credit for coming in sick and doing the damn thing. You know, some, some podcasts might take a day like today off. They might just call it in and say, hey, we're not feeling it today. We can't do it. We've been laid low by illness. Catch you next week. Not the CME. The CME shows up just bedraggled. Uh, and on death's door, I'm talking mostly about you here, looking awful, again you, uh, with a cough, me, but doing it, doing the damn thing, and you look terrible. Primarily because our quality could not could never suffer. It's not, it's not like we're putting out, we don't set the bar particularly high normally. And this is why. Now we're it's paying dividends. Exactly right. So when we have to drag drag in and do it, at 50 or 60%, no one will notice. I unless think, we give a protracted intro to the show where we yes. discuss all of the things we that are We spent several minutes talking about all the things The that thing are wrong I'd like to point out uh, is that it's not as if we are just normally sickly individuals, and it's not like we you know, live in a, a state of disrepair that would just, uh, make us become sick more often than normal people. I think the problem for both of us here is that we have toddlers. Yeah, that's who, absolutely the Who problem. are both in preschool, and I I don't think I've ever been sick as often in my life since my daughter started preschool, and someone in my house is sick constantly. I constantly have a, uh, a like handkerchief in my back pocket to wipe someone's nose because it's just constant. There's never a time when all four members of my household are 100% healthy. The, the best part about having a family, though, is that you get to preview... The cold that you're about to get <laughs> yes. before the cold that you have goes away. Right. You can look at your at your children and or your wife and say, okay, that's where I'll be in, in seven to ten days. Yep. There you go. But we're still here. We're still doing it. That's right. Ben, did you know that pre-orders of my book are now available on Kindle? I did not know that. No, no. Tell yeah. us more. Started last week. All of the people out there in co-main event podcast listener land who had been saying they were waiting for the Kindle version. All those people who had been saying that. They are out of excuses. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. Uh, it's time to put up, go down to the local library, jump on the computer and order the book on Kindle. And then go, I assume these go, people don't have their own computer. They go back to being homeless and just yes. wait. So what do they do? They buy, they pay their money now, yes. and then in August or whenever, then the then the book shows up on their Kindle. On July twelfth, I assume after they have forgotten that they have that they ordered it in the first place, which would be great because then it'll be like you got it twice. Why don't they just wait until July? We've already been over this <laughs> because the. Uh, First week sales are vitally important for first time authors. That's why for, and for pre-order, you, pre-orders go on first week sales. 
So that's why everyone should pre-order the book, and that's why you should stop being a dick about it. <laughs> okay, fair enough. All right, three rounds as usual this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, karate back. Trust me, guys, karate back. And in round number two, so now we know that the titanic matchup between CM Punk and Mickey Gall is finally set. And the only question left to be answered is, uh, why are we doing this again? And in round number three, Bellator continues to be the long-haired middle school kid that doesn't want to be stuck smoking cigarettes by himself out by the bike racks. Smoke them if you got them, Chris Lieben. All that, plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first, oh, sorry, that oh there got, you go. That, that one got me. That one crept up on us. Doing, yeah. uh, doing the listener mail thing really got me. Uh, the first one comes from self-proclaimed journalist of the year, Suzanne Davis. She writes, so Mirko Krokop outed himself and his drug test came back negative. It appears that Yoel Romero is once again a clean soldier of God. Finally, Tim Means immediately launched a spirited defense for his of his positive test by immediately requesting that USADA test his B sample. First, is USADA possibly starting to lose some credibility with the fans and or fighters? Second, when should we be announcing that a fighter has failed their USADA test? When the A sample is returned positive, or when the B sample has confirmed a positive test? Thank you very much for reading my email on your show. The Co-Main Event Podcast is always so much better when Journalist of the Year Suzanne Davis gets a mention. Thanks. Signed, Suzanne Davis, Journalist of the Year. I must have missed it when Suzanne Davis won Journalist of the Year. I must have missed that. I don't think you have the opportunity to miss it once you read one of her emails. <laughs> well, I guess uh, congratulations to Suzanne on winning Journalist of the Year. Yeah, I'm, pr- I'm proud and happy to know that, that she can add that among her many accolades. Yeah. Journalist of the Year. There you go. Put it on the mantle. Uh, okay, let's talk first about the UL Romero thing, the, the soldier of God. What's going on with him? Um, and I think the, the question here of, I, I guess we'll skip to the, the second part of the question first. Uh, when should we be announcing that a fighter has failed their USADA test? Because from what it sounds like, he's now saying he had a, uh, a tainted supplement. Yeah. Is that he correct? And, he and Malky Cabo were on the fortnight today, and they said that his positive test, they said A sample and B sample, both positive, but it, their contention is that it resulted from a contaminated supplement, which is the same thing Tim Means is saying, essentially. I think. The same thing lots of people say. Uh, but that they got USADA to test the uh, the supplement, is that correct? My, I did not watch the appearance, but my understanding from following along on Twitter is, is that they said both of his samples were positive and that I think that USADA is going to test the, the supplement that he was taking. Okay. Uh, I think while... I want to give people a little bit of a break on that when they can say, hey, it was a tainted supplement. Here's the supplement it, I, I took. You test it yourself. See if it matches up. Um, and I could see how you might argue for a little bit of a break in your penalty. That Maybe you get the suspension cut down or something. But we're still – we have to hold on to the uh, idea that they're responsible for whatever goes into their body. If you're saying like – I took something that I had no way of determining what was in it. Uh, I don't know if that's quite the the bulletproof defense a lot of guys seem to think it is. Well, yeah, and it's clear that at this point, I took a tainted supplement is going to become the go-to excuse for fighters that test positive for anything. It's going to be the new, my doctor injected me without my knowledge uh, which is not to say that that's not a legitimate defense by either Tim Means or, or Yoel Romero. Maybe they did take tainted supplements because I took a tainted supplement is one of the best defenses and is one of the few explanations that can possibly be true for why you failed your uh, uh, your drug test. It's, it is, in fact, a better defense than my doctor injected yeah. me with something without my knowledge because – as we've all said before, the supplement industry is kind of a wild, woolly, and unregulated place where, in fact, uh, if you believe some of the literature about athletic supplements out there, one of the go-to moves, or at least I don't want to say go-to moves, but it's not unheard of that a supplement company will come out with a new supplement and bunch dump a bunch of banned substances in there so people think that it works. Right. And then once the word is out that that is the sub, uh, substance that you need to be taken, that that's the supplement you mean, need to be taken, then they'll kind of slowly leach the banned substance out of it 
So then it just becomes regular old creatine or whatever. Same approach that uh, is described for Baltimore drug crews in uh, The Corner. Uh, the follow-up to David Simon's uh, The uh, Homicide, mm-hmm. uh, before he wrote The Wire. Same thing the drug crews would do. Not- Put out a really good batch of, of them yellow tops, of those WMDs that will mass destruct your ass. Uh, and then once the word is out that they're all really good, then you... you Step on it a bunch, and so it's really weak, but people are buying it anyway because it has name brand recognition. Same Not necessarily that different of industries. Right. Really. In uh, many ways. And I think, as you just said, the fighters are still ultimately going to be responsible for uh, the what they put in their bodies. So I think, I mean, just in theory, the testing positive because you took a, t- a tainted supplement – uh, doesn't necessarily earn you a break. Like they could still uh, suspend these guys for two years if they wanted to. And secondly, I guess I would just ask in a general way, is it worth it to be taking these sorts of supplements knowing that you put yourself at risk testing positive? It just seems like, uh, well, maybe you are getting a tremendous advantage if they have steroids in them, but like it just seems in a general way, are you really getting that huge of an advantage by taking whatever over-the-counter supplement you get from GNC, wouldn't it be better to just kind of do it el natural? Or if you know, like, if you're going to take the risk that is inherent with buying, like, a GNC supplement that could or could not have some stuff you don't want thrown in there, aren't you just better off, like, actually knowingly cheating? Because then you can knowingly cycle off or or knowingly try to avoid uh, detection in a drug test. Like, it seems like the worst of all worlds. Like, maybe it has steroids in there, maybe it doesn't. Maybe you're going to get caught for something. Maybe you won't. Um, the question of when they should uh, announce it, the the one of the purposes of having the A sample and the B sample is that if the A sample is positive um, and then the, the way most uh, drug testing agencies do it is that then the fighter can have a representative present for the testing of the B sample, like the unsealing and testing of the B sample, just so that they can make sure there's no funny business going on. So that's one of the reasons why they don't just go... A sample, B sample, uh, right away. And that's one of the things Tim Means brought up. Also, though, it seems like Tim Means' defense, we discussed it a little bit in the Breakfast of Champions, for one thing, where he said how he was totally clean and that's what he's sticking with. Uh, again, don't say that's what I'm sticking with in your drug test uh, failure denial. But also one of his things was like just kind of a vague attempt at claiming uh, contamination in the tests saying, well, I don't know how many hundreds of tests that they do. They're, how many tests pass through those machines? It's probably all contaminated, man. I mean, that's kind of what they do. So just saying like they do a bunch of tests, therefore it's probably, uh, they probably got my sample contaminated with somebody else's dirty sample. Yeah, that's not really going to fly. So don't try that. But the question about is USADA starting to lose some credibility? It's weird how quickly we seem to have gone from, hey, why isn't USADA catching anyone? Uh, what's going on here? Is this not working? To USADA's caught a bunch of people, but then maybe not. But then now we're starting to wonder about the actual, like how the results of those tests are actually going to stick. It seems like give us two more weeks and we'll figure out a brand new problem with USADA. Yeah, I don't think it's going to be a completely antiseptic process, nor do I think it's going to be a particularly black and white process at this point. I mean, I think we w- would like it to be, and maybe we had the, the expectation that it would be, but at this point it seems like uh, there's going to be mistakes, some mistakes made, and I think just as we saw with normal drug testing, uh, people are always going to have an excuse. It's right. kind of what it seems like so far. Like I don't think you're going to see very many people come out at this point and be like, yeah, yeah, you know, I was cheating. I was jacking every roid I could find, so kudos to them for catching me. Except for Miracle Crow Cop, who's going to tell you that he was doing HGH to try to extend his martial times, and they didn't even catch him. Next question this week comes from Eric Fries. He writes, So news just broke that the Dark Lord Rothwell is fighting Junior Dos Santos. Wouldn't it make more sense to fight Kane or Stipe? Stipe. Seems like a no-win situation for Rothwell. He wins, he doesn't really gain anything, but if he fucks around, well, there's another one. Sorry. If he fucks around and gets knocked out, he loses all his momentum. Uh, so yeah, this news just came out, uh, today, I believe, um, that Ben Rothwell will fight, uh, Junior Dos Santos. Not only is Rothwell catching Junior Dos Santos, which is a tough matchup for a dude that already has a significant win streak in the UFC, but this is going down at Fight Night 86 in Croatia. 
which will air, I believe, only on the fightpass.com on April 10th. So it's a tough matchup for Roth- Rothwell. I guess you could consider it a title eliminator, maybe, although I don't even know if, if we want to throw that terminology around in the heavyweight division anymore. Uh, but it's a tough matchup, and it's a lower-profile matchup that I think you were hoping for just in terms of, of where it will be broadcast if you were Ben Rothwell. Well, yeah, and also with uh, Dos Santos coming off that knockout loss to Overeem, uh, who, by the way, Ben Rothwell already has a knockout win over. Yeah, it doesn't seem like this does anything special for you after you just choked Josh Barnett. I don't think knocking out, if you go out there and knock out Junior Dos Santos or submit him uh, right now, it's a less valuable win than the last one you had. I, I guess the upside for him is stay busy, keep getting paid, uh, stay in the picture uh, for the heavyweights. Um and, I don't know, maybe you hope that, all right, I'll just start training for this fight, acting like everything is totally normal, and then who knows what happens elsewhere in the heavyweight division. They might give me a call and want to switch me out of this fight for some other fight. Because um, otherwise, I think Eric Fries is right, that it just does not seem like it makes a whole lot of sense for Rothwell and does come with some some pretty significant risks. Did we get an announcement at any, at any point? What's actually going on with uh, the title? I thought that the, that uh last I heard they're saying that they don't think that Cain Velasquez is uh is going to be out for too long. So it sounds like right, we're, we're going to make that one again. They said uh 4 weeks I thought with the, for a a recovery time period. Oh, I see that there are rumors that maybe they're going to do uh Verdum versus Miocic at 198, but that hasn't been confirmed yet. Uh So yeah, that's kind of a I mean, I don't know how you feel about that if you're if you're Ben Rothwell. I'm sure that you wanted the title shot, but you must have known that you probably weren't going to get it. You know you got to fight a top contender at this point if you're Rothwell. So I guess on one hand, well, it seems like it must be kind of a bummer. I don't know what other direction they would go than give him a guy like Dos Anjos. Yeah, well, or I guess the the thing you have to consider for every single fight in the heavyweight division right now is they all feel pretty tentative. Until maybe the week of. Then we can start to consider it for real. Next question this week comes from Dwayne Richards. He writes, This week the UFC confirmed that John Jones will return to fight Daniel Cormier at UFC 197 in April. What are your thoughts on the UFC putting Mighty Mouse and Henry Cejudo on the card as the co-main? Good idea? Bad idea? Indifferent idea? Please discourse. Uh, I think it's a pretty good idea, actually. I saw somebody was, maybe it was even Chiapetta was saying something about how before they announced this, he thought it would be a slam dunk to put... Uh, Mighty Mouse against Cejudo on the co-main event of, of this uh, Johnny Bones versus Daniel Cormier fight. I think it gives the UFC a real obvious marketing strategy if they want one because Cejudo and Cormier were both former Olympic wrestlers. Uh, it puts the flyweights out there on a on a pay-per-view that is probably going to be heavily trafficked and, and score a pretty good buy rate, which will give people... Uh, an opportunity to tune in and see what the little guys are able to do and maybe give Demetrius Johnson a few extra dollars in his pocket. Uh, and it seems like a good fight, frankly, to have uh, Demetrius Johnson fight Henry Cejudo, who seems like one of the few guys in that division that's going to be able to maybe match him athletically uh, and try to keep up with him. And I guess we must assume, since this is going down in Vegas, that now that the Nick Diaz situation is essentially taken care of, that uh, Henry Cejudo lifted his Vegas ban. Somewhere in there. How kind of him. I know. Uh, and they've done this before with the John Jones, uh, Demetrius Johnson on the same card. Right? UFC 152 uh, in Toronto where John Jones uh, fought Vitor Belfort. And that now kind of infamous uh, about Demetrius Johnson was the co-main event there. So maybe they, they feel like they like that pairing. Uh, I like it. I, I, I got no problem with that. I think that uh, the... Johnson Cejudo fight is one of those where we're all going to beforehand write and discuss how we wish more people were excited for it because it does sound like an interesting fight uh, and uh, an interesting clash in a division that fans for the most part just generally do not give a damn about. Um, so maybe they're hoping one more time people come for John Jones and they, they stick around for the flyweights and realize maybe they saw something there that they liked. 
You know what I'm excited for? What? Uh, all of the pre-fight photos of that are going to be of John Jones and Demetrius Johnson standing next to each other. Ah. So we can see, ha-ha, John Jones is tall and Demetrius Johnson is not. Yeah, it's a sight <laughs> gag. That's going to be a good one. I dig it. Last question this week comes to us from... <coughs> Glad we could get that in there. Darby Jollison. He or she writes, John Jones in trouble again for his driving. What's really going on? What's going on indeed? So the John Jones, the latest moving violation from the former light heavyweight champion, this has been a developing story all day. A lot of twists and turns here with this new John Jones uh, getting in trouble with the law. First, we had reports that he was driving without a license, and then one of his representatives, actually the woman who runs, runs the quote-unquote PR and crisis management firm that represents John Jones, came out and said that he does have a license and and registration and insurance, but that he was merely speeding. And the last I saw was that they had come out uh, to update that update to say maybe he wasn't even speeding. (laughs) Yeah, maybe uh, he pulled over the cop. How about that? Said the cop was speeding, gave him a ticket. Citizen's arrest. That's right. That's That's my update to the updated update. Uh, yeah, and now they're saying, yeah, he, he has a license and insurance. Everything is fine. Uh, it sounds like it's ultimately not going to be an issue for the, the planned Daniel Cormier rematch. I would like to note that the, the first time, uh, I met John Jones was when, and I don't know if I've told the story on the podcast before, when I went to do a fight magazine cover story on him and he was, you know, living in, in upstate New York, training there. Um, I think, he had been back and forth to TriStar in Montreal a couple times, and he was going to be there to, for a couple weeks to train. And so the plan was to fly me out to Montreal to meet John Jones uh, at TriStar, spend a couple days there, get some photos, do a story, uh, and then fly home. I flew to Montreal, called him up, like, all right, what time are you going to be at TriStar today? And he was like, okay, funny story about that. Uh, I realized my license is suspended from like not paying speeding tickets or getting too many speeding tickets in a short amount of time. His girlfriend's license was also suspended for the same reason. Said he could not, they could not drive across the border into Canada that way. Um, so he had decided that he, the, the trip was canceled. He was just going to stay home. So then I rented a car in Montreal, drove down to upstate New York where he was, spent a couple of days, did the story that way. And if you want to get the border patrol to get all up in your shit, fly from Montana to Montreal, rent a car, and then drive back into the U.S. in a, in a different point. Suspicious. Yeah. They took one look at you, and they're like, oh, this guy's smuggling cigarettes. They they were just they didn't even want to discuss it once they realized what my travel itinerary, itinerary had been. It was just like, we'll pull over, and we're going to tear this Prius, this rented Prius, apart. Uh, and so that's what we did for a little while. Um, but yeah, maybe here's the point where... In, Maybe the best thing you could do for John Jones is buy him a skateboard. Like some, something like that. Uh, because it seems like it's just he and vehicles. How many times do you have to learn that th- those two don't go together well? He does have an astounding number of, uh, run-ins with the law vis-a-vis an automobile, right? Like even the low profile, he has a bunch of low profile ones that don't even make it into the story. When you're talking about all of the trouble he's had driving, right? Because right. people will talk about the DUI and the, the hit and run uh, from from April or whenever it was last year. They don't even talk about, like, that one time he got in a car accident and tweeted that he was fine, even though he totaled his Bentley or whatever. And then somebody tweeted to him, and like, what about the people in the other car? And he tweeted back, oh, I have no idea. The, 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 <laughs> but one they were the taken away in an ambulance, I think, right? right? Yeah, I mean, one of the first incidents of John Jones sort of like – uh, peeking out of the closet as a guy who considered himself to be the most important person in any situation. And then, as you said, like having his license suspended. And that was like before he was even famous, really. Right. That was when he had just started out in the UFC. So it's strange that John Jones, amazing athlete, possessing of such wonderful hand-eye coordination, can apparently not drive a car within the... uh within the confines of the rules of the road at this point. And a lot of people joke about this, and I saw a lot of people joking about it on Twitter today, but seriously, like, why not just have a driver if you were John Jones at this point? Just get a personal assistant who will drive you around. Yeah, Um, and make him wear a hat. Make him wear a silly hat, because you can, because they're they're your driver. 
and you don't want to miss that opportunity. I, I mean, the moment I get a little money, Chad, that's when I'm going to hire you to be my driver. And I will be the best damn driver anyone has and ever And you will had. be wearing the silliest goddamn hat you've ever seen. And probably affecting some kind of accent at all times, <laughs> because I imagine if I'm a driver, that's the sort of thing I'll need to do. Probably. I'll be wearing those leather gloves that have holes in the knuckles. Yeah, <laughs> naturally you would. Maybe a, scor- a jacket with a scorpion on the back of it, from Ryan- like Ryan Gosling from that well, movie. Now I feel like we're sending mixed messages. Nope. Awesome driver. That's the only message I'm interested in sending. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's uh, listener mail segment. If you have questions, comments, or concerns for the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. Uh, you can go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us while you're there. You might as well sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that you miss from Tuesday through Thursday when we're not recording the podcast. It's short. It's humorous. It hits the high notes. Uh, we think you'll like it. And even if you don't, it's really easy to unsubscribe. So easy. Very. It's probably the easiest thing to unsubscribe from on the Internet. Might be the easiest thing you've ever done. Just You know what people should do? Just sign up and then unsubscribe just for the hell of it. Or you know what? Sign up, realize how easy it is to unsubscribe, and think, it's too easy. I'll just stay signed up. Just stay signed up because they know they could unsubscribe at any time. Yeah. Anyway, that's going to do it. We're going to get started with round number one. Well, Ben, the joke is on everybody who thought Stephen Wonderboy Thompson would get run over by the former welterweight champion Johnny Hendricks on Saturday at uh, UFC Fight Night 82. In fact, the opposite was true. And uh, the Wonderboy scores a first-round TKO in 3 minutes and 31 seconds uh, after really kind of chewing up Johnny Hendricks uh, in the striking exchanges from start to finish in this fight. Uh, and as I wrote in my story on, on Bleacher Report this past week, uh, Johnny Hendricks got this look on his face every time Stephen Thompson either hit him or kicked him, where he was like, wait, what? <laughs> and especially you could see it when Thompson sidekicked him in the stomach and then sidekicked him in the face immediately after that. Johnny Hendricks, he made this face that I feel like we were all making at home where we were like, wait a second, this stuff's not supposed to work. In an yeah. MMA fight? Well, I think also uh, this was Thompson at his best you, using the kicks to kind of mesmerize you, break up your rhythm, um, stop your own attack. And then when you try to get restarted, uh, his counterpunching, it seemed like, was where he really hurt Johnny Hendricks. It seemed like that the kicks uh, kind of mess with you and the punches are what really hurt you. Uh, and you're right that it, it did seem like the viewer, or at least viewers like us, were experiencing the same degree of surprise that Johnny Hendricks was, only we weren't being physically harmed uh, by that surprise the way he was. Uh, and afterwards, I guess my main feeling was, should we have seen this coming? A little, like, what did we, did we think that Johnny Hendricks was better or more well-equipped to deal with uh, a fighter of Stephen Thompson's style, or were we a little too dismissive of basically karate bullshit, uh, where we just thought like, all right, Stephen Thompson, he's able, he's been able to look good against uh, some lower level uh, welterweights. He can, he can surprise you. He can get get a good highlight real finish every once in a while. But you throw him in there against former UFC welterweight champion Johnny Hendricks, uh, and he's gonna get mauled. Yeah, I think that we are and have been dismissive of that. And in fact, that was kind of the point of my story that I wrote. And what you so eloquently describe as karate bullshit has long, like gotten short shrift in modern MMA. Uh, And basically it was because 
going back to the roots of mixed martial arts in America, the Gracies basically started the UFC as an infomercial for their Brazilian jiu-jitsu fighting style. And a major component of that was that they came out and made a bunch of these stand-up oriented traditional martial artists look like fools by taking them down and choking them out. And from there, like if we can engage in an incredibly accelerated description of mixed martial arts, like MMA forced fighting styles to evolve at an unprecedented rate really, really fast over the last two decades. And we had this thing where uh, efficiency was put at a premium. And I think because of that, a lot of the more no frills Western martial arts like wrestling and kickboxing kind of took precedence because people didn't think that quote unquote karate bullshit would work. And so it really quickly got dismissed from what you might consider the bedrock building blocks of somebody's MMA skill set. But now we have another like quasi evolutionary turn in the sport, which to me is super unexpected and super interesting where you have a bunch of people like Stephen Wonderboy Thompson and frankly, like Conor McGregor uh, who utilizes some karate style uh, in, in his fighting where it seems like we've reached a point in the sport where the athletes are good enough and they are possessing of enough knowledge that some of the stuff that we previously looked at and thought of as bullshit uh, seems is starting to become effective, which yeah. is weird. Well, another thing I wondered was uh, how much of it has to do with a guy like Johnny Hendricks. If you're if you're trying to prepare for Stephen Wonderboy Thompson, who do you find to come in and throw some karate bullshit at you and to do it well enough for you to get ready for what is a style that you don't see a whole lot of in MMA? Whereas for Stephen Thompson. Dealing with an American wrestler with a, a big knockout punch, that's not too hard to find right. if you look around in gyms. If you're just if you're training in top mixed martial arts gyms, you're gonna be forced to work on your takedown defense or your get up from the takedown, uh, and you can kind of just through osmosis at it with the rest of your karate game. Whereas it's a little more difficult, I think, to come at the other way around and to find something that can help you prepare for, for a style that you may never have seen before. Right. I totally agree with that. I think it probably does make Stephen Thompson hard to prepare for. I think in our discussion of karate bullshit, we should also note though, that uh, probably the most impressive thing that, that Stephen Thompson did was stop Johnny Hendricks from taking him down. Maybe not most impressive, but like most efficient and effective thing he did was it was stay on his feet where he could use his karate stylings. Uh, and he did stop that one takedown and, and got back up to his feet very, very quickly. I also think we should point out that, uh, it's not as though Stephen Thompson is just out there only with his karate skill set. He's not like that Taekwondo guy that Travis Fulton threw on his head in the famous. Uh, internet video. Uh, Thompson's brother-in-law, I believe, is Carlos Machado, the famous Brazilian jiu-jitsu uh, stylist, and uh, he trains with Chris Weidman, uh, and I would assume Ray Longo and, and Matt Serra when he's getting prepared for these for these fights. So it's not like he's going out there with karate alone. Clearly, he has some wrestling. He has some jiu-jitsu. He, these guys who are bringing karate back are well-trained modern mixed martial artists. It's just that they are using these techniques that we haven't really seen be effective before, which is kind of interesting. You know, one of the takeaways that I had after this fight was over first was, wow, that was surprising, especially not just that he won, but that he dismantled Johnny Hendricks in the first round the way he did. But also I had to picture Tyron Woodley watching this fight and going, son of a bitch, this better not happen. I better not get skipped over this. Uh, and yet if you ask me like, okay, which welterweight title fight if you could make kind of any of them that are on the table right now and you could make it soon which one would you be most interested in sitting down to watch i have to admit i'd want to see how stephen thompson's karate bullshit fares against robbie lawler more yeah. so than i want to see tyrone woodley take no doubt lawler. about it that's like one of the most exciting things about karate bullshit making its way to the octagon is that especially in the case of wonder boy thompson like, this is a guy you want to watch fight. This is a guy whose, whose style is exciting. Uh, he has this flashy striking style. He's certainly athletic enough to, to hurt people. He has the speed and power, uh, to give anybody trouble with this diverse striking skill set that he has, uh, on the feet. I see just glancing at the UFC official rankings, he has flown up five spots to number three. How about that? Uh, so he's still officially behind Tyron Woodley, but, 
come on, man. <laughs> you know, we they, know what's going to happen. If here. the UFC announces uh, Stephen Thompson for the next title shot, you know he'll just go up a couple more spots just right. just on the announcement. Yeah, he'll he'll get the bump. Um, and I mean, I don't know, man. It's, uh, coming away from this event, I felt like he was he is a guy who could potentially give even Robbie Lawler an interesting fight on the feet and a fight that would be fun to watch. And I felt like coming out of it that he had solidified himself as kind of the surprise number one contender. Yeah, I, I certainly wouldn't mind it. Uh, now let's turn a little bit and talk about Johnny Hendricks. Oh uh, man. Yeah. I, I wrote about this a little bit beforehand, how, you know, after we, we talked a little bit on the podcast about how this was a fight that Johnny Hendricks really seemed like he needed to win. And he was talking about beforehand about so all the changes that had gone on. You know, he had this, uh, he left team takedown. He had a new nutritionist, uh, Stuff in his personal life had changed, where the restaurant closing down, all that kind of stuff. And he was talking about it as kind of a rebirth. Um, and the point I made in a pre-fight column was that it, people only call it a rebirth if you win. If you go through all those changes and then you lose, then people start to look at you like you might be on the decline there. Uh, what do you think that this loss says for the state of Johnny Hendricks' career right now? It says it was a precipitous rise and fall for Johnny Hendricks because there was about 13 months there from UFC 167 when he lost to George St. Pierre but gave him a hell of a fight. There was a lot of people who thought he deserved to walk away with the judge's verdict in that fight. Uh, you know, from there all the way up until his loss to Robbie Lawler at UFC 181 in December of 2014, it seemed like Johnny Hendricks was going to be the state, the new standard bearer in this division and was going to be one of the primary guys who would help us get over the absence of George St. Pierre. Uh, and certainly in the wake of that loss and, and having to have, um, bicep tendon surgery just before that second fight with Robbie Lawler and then missing weight for an intended fight with Tyron Woodley uh, has kind of put Johnny Hendricks into a little bit of a tailspin, even if uh, he was able to get the sort of comeback win against Matt Brown at UFC 185. And we well, we talked about this on the podcast last week that this Stephen Thompson fight was a fight that he could not afford to lose. And now he has lost it. Uh, he seemed to take it in surprisingly good spirits considering how Johnny Hendricks has reacted to losses in the past. He sort of kind of shrugged his shoulders and said, well, this is this is the beginning of something new and there's going to be bumps in the road. I'll be back. Uh, so I don't know, man. Uh, John Johnny Hendricks is a guy who at this point is it's still just in his early 30s, but he's two and three now dating back to that loss of George St. Pierre uh, and is definitely a guy who seems like he needs some wins and maybe needs to kind of get it figured out. Yeah, well, this one was the first one basically of his career where there's absolutely no debate as to who won and who lost that fight. Yeah. Uh, so I imagine that that's probably a, a little harder to take, but also B forces you to take it a certain way. Um, because there's not a whole lot you can say there the way you could say stuff about the lost Robbie Lawler or the lost to George St. Pierre. And I think that there's the danger that MMA fans are going to do the thing they do where they just write the guy off and say, oh, he was overrated to begin with, uh, and, uh, you know, we thought he was good, then he lost one fight, and now he sucks. Uh, so I'll be really interested to see what happens in the next fight for him. I, I don't know if this necessarily tells us that, you know, the, the decline has begun for Johnny Hendricks. It could be that he just... He, he went in there and got surprised by some of the stuff he saw, wasn't quite ready for what Stephen Thompson brought to the table. Maybe Stephen Thompson uh, is just way better than we all realized. I don't know. It will be interesting, though, to see uh, what happens in his next fight because talk about one you can't afford to lose. That's going to be whatever Johnny Hendricks ends up doing next. Yeah, I don't even know who you give Johnny Hendricks next at this point. Um, and he looked like a million bucks physically. Frankly, like before the fight started, prior to the bell, I guess you would say. Yes. Certainly came in and, uh, sailed through the, the, uh, the weigh in portion without the tremendous weight cut that he has had to, uh, put himself through before. So, uh, I think there's still reason to believe that he could be a factor in this division, but he's definitely going to have to kind of turn things around in, in a hurry now. And you would think maybe he would get somebody, uh, Neil Magny ish in the, in the low, Low top tens, I guess you would say, somewhere, somewhere around there. The, your, your Turek Safadines, perhaps. There you go. Something like that. Uh, well, Ben, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to round number two this week. What's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me for this week? Well, Chad, I, I don't know if you caught that I did a story last week about the UFC really kind of cracking down on people who make 
uh, breakdown videos uh, using UFC footage, going after people who may, who post uh, UFC gifts, um, getting just even more aggressive about trying to pull every shred of UFC content they can off of the internet unless it's been uploaded directly by the UFC. Um, and how, A, some of that is questionable uh, under fair use exemptions, but also maybe not just a good idea as far as engaging a fan base that exists largely on the internet uh, and seems like you could make a lot better use of uh, some of that stuff. Um, and then I'm watching the fights. I'm looking at Twitter. Right after Stephen Thompson knocks out Johnny Hendricks, I see the UFC tweet out you know, something to the effect of like, wow, how about Wonder Boy along with a gif of the very end of the Karate Kid. Huh. Where, you know, there's that crane kick, big finish, and the whole Valley Karate with tournament. with the Karate Kid, yes. Yeah. Uh, just tweeting out that gif of copyrighted material, which you think, is... You think that they checked that with Ralph Macchio? Which is also a spoiler, in, in a way. <laughs> uh-huh. um, a movie that came out in 1984, but sure. And so I guess the lesson here is that copyrighted material must never be taken from anybody and, and shared without their their express permission uh, if it's the UFC's. Right, yeah. If it's somebody else's... And they're doing it. And they're the ones doing it, then hey, you do whatever you want. We're all just just sharing and having a good time. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me. Well, been a real roller coaster ride this week for Alex Nicholson, who proposed to his girlfriend during the Friday weigh-ins for UFC Fight Night 82. What'd she say? Uh, spoiler alert. We're pretty sure she said yes. Oh, okay. So that was, that was a high. And you'd have to think that, uh, it was kind of a low when we believe that he got his damn jaw broken by Misha Sirkunov. Did I say that right? How was Nailed that? Nailed it. Was that pretty close? Uh, they had a light heavyweight fight. Uh, Sirkunov put him in a, a rear naked choke kind of across the, across the jaw, a jaw crusher type maneuver, uh, and, and broke his jaw. The fight got stopped. Uh, Nicholson did a thing where it looked like he was trying to hold his face together, which was super gross when the fight ended. And then we found out that the UFC's cage side mics picked up the sound of his jaw snapping at the end of the fight. And Brian Stan urged us to watch the replay so we could hear it. Are you fucking kidding me? No, thank you, Brian Stan. Are you fucking kidding me? Well, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Well, Chad, the CM Punk sweepstakes has been decided. Mickey Gall went out there in 45 seconds, dropped Mike Jackson with right hand, latched on the rear naked choke. Next thing you know, Mickey Gall and uh, CM Punk, who is in there in a, in a sweet three-piece suit, find themselves face-to-face in the octagon, while Joe Silva stands by, urging them both to put up their fists like they're actually doing a stare-down instead of just having an awkward interaction in front of some cameras. So now I guess we're actually doing this. How pumped are you with 10 being so pumped your face is melting off and one being merely incredibly pumped? Uh, zero, I guess. Before we get into an entire round of what I assume will be somewhat mocking this situation, I think it's only fair that we point out that all of the particulars and the, all of the principles involved in this thing, except for the UFC itself, from what I can tell, seem to actually be being fairly reasonable about this. Uh, Mike, the truth, Jackson, who ended up losing this fight last week uh, to Mickey Gall, but is a guy who has been credentialed at East Coast UFC events as a member of the media, seemed to be a smart guy, a guy who kind of understood the process uh, and seemed to be kind of having fun with it and even in defeat seemed to take it fairly well. Uh, looked terrible during the actual fight, but I mean, you get two guys in there that have what a grand total of two fights between them heading into this fight. Uh, I think that's what you expect. Mickey Gall in the wake of this has kind of, uh, 
he's definitely trying to sell a fight between himself and CM Punk, but he also seems like a bright kid and a guy who understands the realities of uh, why the UFC would want to fight him and understands why that is an opportunity for him, both personally and professionally. And even CM Punk all the way through this thing has kind of always said, look, I don't know if I'm going to be any good at this. And I fully expect that when I get in there, a lot of people are going to want to see me get my ass kicked, but it's a thing that I want to do and I'm going to do it. And in, from that regard, it's a, I can't fault any of those people. They all kind of seem like they are coming at this in a very reasonable way. However, I guess you would say, I still don't know why this is a fight that we would want to have in the UFC if we are the UFC. Yeah, it seems that you're right for one thing that everybody other than the UFC are being very reasonable. I don't think you could be mad at any of these no, people. No, and I think that that's the kind of the saving grace uh, for especially for CM Punk because he did that interview on Fight Pass with Ariel Helwani beforehand and afterward. I mean, they covered this shit from all angles for a Fight Pass prelim fight. Um, but you know, him talking beforehand where he was acknowledging what a weird situation it is. And he was the one to even bring up how weird it is that no one was even talking about Mike Jackson and what was going to become of him if he won. Uh, and then the way the actual fight went made you think that the UFC went looking for a guy who could bring a little personality and then kind of immediately lose and make Mickey Gall look good. Uh, and therefore they were the reason they weren't worried about what was going to happen to Mike Jackson. If he won is because they felt pretty sure that he wouldn't win. Uh, and, but by acknowledging that, by bringing that up, by saying like, hey, the whole situation is weird and I know it, it does uh, make you like CM Punk in that situation a little more. Uh, and I think right now, the answer to the question, why is this a thing we want to see, the weirdness of it is like 80% of the draw. At least for me. I mean, maybe for other people who were big pro wrestling fans and knew CM Punk from that, I'd Never really followed too much pro wrestling when CM Punk was active in it, so I can't say that I really know uh, how much of that interest is carrying over. But for me, at least, the fact that the whole thing is so weird is kind of what's pulling me through at this point and what's maintaining my interest. Yeah, I was wondering about this today, and I guess this goes back to why the UFC would want to have this fight. I was starting to wonder my to myself, if CM Monk is going to turn out to be a significant draw in mixed martial arts, uh, in terms of like how many people he's going to bring to the pay-per-view, uh, market, clearly he was a big star in, in, in wrestling in WWE and was always kind of a fan favorite and was one of those guys who fans looked at as a guy who was unfairly treated by management, even if, you know, that was a perception that the people working inside WWE worked hard to create, uh, as a work, uh, and so therefore, like, he always had this sort of political capital with fans, but it's going to be damn near two years since he has been in WWE or two years since he has done anything of note, frankly, by the time he gets into the cage to fight Mickey Gall. And, you know, professional wrestling fans tuned in in droves, I think we are led to believe, to watch Brock Lesnar. But Brock Lesnar was a super good MMA fighter also. So I wonder to myself... Like, how many people are really going to follow CM Punk over to watch him in the UFC? And, like, what kind of numbers does he need to bring to the table in order to make this thing worthwhile for the UFC? Like, we're still, we don't know yet if he's going to wind up on UFC 199 or UFC 200. But let's say he winds up maybe as, like, the co-main of UFC 199 with some championship fight in the main event. Like, what kind of pay-per-view buy rate does that have to score for us to look at it and go, oh, huh the CM Punk effect. Like to me, it just seems like we're going to bring in a guy with zero professional fights. Who's going to have this fight and who may not be a quote unquote needle mover. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I don't know what the number would be. Uh, but I do think that as far as getting people like him, motivating people to buy it, to see him, I think that he has a pretty good uh, triangulation there of the pro wrestling fans uh, who liked him or at least were really interested in him, want to see how he'll do, uh, don't necessarily buy every UFC pay-per-view, but by, by the big ones, they hear CM Punk. All right, they'll tune in for that one. And then the uh, MMA fans who hate that this is even happening and really hope that CM Punk gets his whole shit broke, um, they're not going to miss that opportunity to, to pay to see CM Punk get no, his whole I, shit broke. No, I suppose, broke. I suppose. I understand why it seems like a promotable thing. I'm just, <clears throat> I'm going to be kind of surprised if it turns out that, 
CM Punk, like if UFC 199 jumps over a million buy rates or something crazy like that, I will be surprised if he turns out to be a huge draw. And if he's not a huge draw, then we just got a 37-year-old man who's never been in a fight before, which, you know, maybe MMA fans are tuning in hoping to see him get his whole shit broke. But to me, it seems like kind of a non-event, honestly, unless both of these dudes turn out to be just like unbelievable fighting prodigies that are going to go out there in their third and first fight, respectively, and just suddenly be really awesome. Otherwise, I think you're going to get a fight that you could see at the Adam Center here in Missoula, Montana, uh, which isn't necessarily what people want to pay 60 bucks to watch on pay-per-view. Hey, I just went to the Adam Center, saw those fights. 15 bucks, general admission. I'm sure that you were entertained. Yeah, I was. Let's, uh, can, we, can we say some one more nice thing, though, about Nikki, Mickey Gall just in terms of the actual fight? And that is that he didn't look like a dude who was overcome by the, the spectacle of being in the octagon. Obviously, it was a very short fight. He punched Mike Jackson once. And things hit the deck from there. But, uh, and maybe the saving grace of this fight was that they got it over before either of their, like, insane, uh, inexperience could come to the fore. But, like, I don't know, man. Mickey Gall seemed right at home out there in the cage, which I guess is something positive you have to say about the guy. He did. The thing that I, that I think you have to wonder, though, uh, is, so say, you know, he's 2-0 and now. Uh, say he goes out there, he beats CM Punk, beats him convincingly. Then he's 3-0, and and he's in the UFC. What do you do with him then? Because... Uh, you don't have a whole lot of people at what 170, uh, or if, even if you were to, you know, move down a weight class at 155, where it'd be even worse. You just don't have a whole lot of people of that experience level to match him up with. Like you, you kind of have to get thrown into the deep end uh, to some extent. And so it almost seems like winning that fight, and then you know the the bump that Mickey Gall would get name recognition wise. Then he becomes somebody that other people want to knock off, and he he might find himself kind of by default overmatched pretty quickly in the UFC. That I think what becomes of both those guys, win or lose, after this fight that, again, we're not even sure why we're doing, that's going to be interesting to see. Yeah, well, yeah, remember back when Amir Sadala won the Ultimate Fighter back in 2008 and didn't have any professional fights and and was thrust into the UFC? And from there, like, maybe did a little bit better than you would expect the guy to do. I think he, you know, he 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 won two, lost one in that pattern for about his entire UFC career. Uh, but they had to make a rule about it. They made a rule that you couldn't be on the Ultimate Fighter after that unless you had a certain number of professional fights, like three or five or something like that. Uh, so they already know that this is trouble. To have a guy coming into the UFC where you're supposed to have the highest level MMA fighters in the world who doesn't have any professional experience. And that's the situation that you're going to get yourself in with Mickey Gall and or CM Punk, uh, no matter who wins this fight. Uh, side note, by the way, I just now noticed, I don't, and I do not remember this, but Amir Sadala's second professional loss at U, or first professional loss, second professional fight was at UFC 101 declaration. He lost by TKO in 29 seconds to Johnny Hendricks. Huh. How about so, that? There's a little, that's a real, gives the, the show a circular feel. Yeah. It's bringing it back. How tidy. Um, why did they do this fight? Like, we've already discussed why it doesn't necessarily make sense for them to even try to promote CM Punk as an MMA fighter. Why do this fight between Mickey Gall and Mike Jackson? Like, if CM Punk is going to come in with zero fights, like, why give Mickey Gall the chance to go out there and get his feet wet in the octagon? Well, I think because they went out there and specifically found an opponent for CM Punk. On a reality show. This thing is just so weird from start to finish, Right. right? Looking for a fight, they found Mickey Gall. That's right. Um, in between restaurant visits, found Mickey Gall. And I think maybe the feeling is you just take this guy and you throw him right into a fight. Then it seemed like what all you did was go looking for somebody who CM Punk could beat or somebody who wouldn't hurt CM Punk too badly. Um, and instead, if you take him, you give him a fight, you at least create the appearance that he has earned this, that he has he has shown that he is worthy of this opportunity of fighting O&O MMA fighter CM Punk. Um, and you give other people a chance to get to know him a little bit and maybe rally behind him if they're of the crowd that wants to see CM Punk get his whole shit broke. Um, so I think it, it kind of makes sense from that perspective. Well, I that's a thin bit of subterfuge indeed. However, I will say, if the if the... The point of this thing was to make Mickey Gall seem like a guy who might whip CM Punk's ass in their fight. 
mission accomplished because <laughs> that's kind of how I came away from this. Well, again, we have no idea what CM Punk could do. Like his anything he might do is a complete mystery. I know he might go up there like Stephen Wonderboy Thompson, just whip somebody's ass with spinning side check kicks and whatnot. Well, that would make for a fun CME podcast the Monday after that. It will indeed. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. <coughs> I'm slip you that last cough in there just for good measure. Stop it. Ben Christian Cyrus Lieben is back in the mixed martial arts world, signed this past week by Bellator in what has to be considered the least surprising retired guy to come out of retirement to sign with Bellator in some time. Uh, even though Chris Lieben hasn't fought since December 2013, I think we all know we had not seen the last of the Crippler, the Cat Smasher. The Red Terror. Remember those days back when Chris Lieben used to be the Red Terror? I do not remember that. That was was back in the sport fight days. That's when he fought Benji Raddick in sport fight. They billed him as the Red Terror. Uh, How are we even supposed to feel about this? Sad? I guess so. I feel kind of sad. And I have a feeling of impending creeping dread, frankly. Yeah, you say that you feel entirely unsurprised by it. I don't know if I felt surprised, but I did, I did, I guess hope that his retirement was going to stick because it felt like it came at the right time and it felt like he was saying all the things you'd hope to hear from a guy who was going to stay retired afterwards um and then some of the the trouble that he got himself into i mean he was just in jail just very recently in jail and it started to seem like uh uh-oh post-retirement life uh might hold some some trouble for chris lieben and hearing that he's going to come back into bellator that does not make me feel any better about the immediate future of one Chris Lieben. Yeah, and Chris Lieben is a guy that we have both interviewed, is a guy that we have both spent a minor amount of time around, a guy that back in those days coming off the first season of The Ultimate Fighter uh, certainly seemed like a good dude and a smart guy and uh, a guy who throughout his MMA career even even still has had some troubles Uh, But this recent jail stint and the charges that led to it were pretty troubling. Yeah. Uh, And are the kind of thing that I think if we're going to go on our show all the time and talk about Anthony Johnson's history with domestic violence and violence against women, we kind of have to paint Chris Lieben with the same brush uh, just just to be fair about it. And this seems like the kind of thing that it's awfully hard to support him as a person carrying on with his athletic career in the in the wake of those charges. Uh, and that's just like the first troubling thing about this. The second troubling thing that he seemed to have kind of a rocky retirement, as you mentioned, there were a lot of uh, kind of up and down signs from him where he would appear to be very depressed. He would appear to be uh, struggling. And then suddenly he would appear to be doing great and all over Twitter talking about getting back into training and working with people and all this stuff. Uh, And the third, I think kind of troubling aspect of this was that he did not necessarily light the world on fire dating back even to like 2011 in the UFC when he lost to Brian Stan, he beat Vanderlei Silva right after that. uh, But then lost four in a row. Uh, to Mark Munoz, Derek Brunson, Andrew Craig, and Uriah Hall in that order. Um, so he has not seemed like a particularly high-level uh, middleweight for some time now, and a guy who seems to have some personality troubles. So this is not necessarily like a nostalgic Bellator signing that I feel like we can hashtag woodwatch, hashtag fun fights over. Yeah, well, and again, it seems like the thing Bellator was trying to sell us on and uh, explaining why they signed him was, hey, you know, the guy's never in a boring fight. The guy has, like, these awesome slugfest fights. And that almost just feels like a part of the reason why I don't want to see him come back and do it in Bellator uh, is because you know that that's 
part of what he's promising. That's part of what he's trading on is that his willingness to go out there and brawl and, and take some head trauma. And it feels like he's already taken a bunch. Uh, and I, it just kind of depresses me to think that that's going to be part of the selling point is, Hey, Chris Lieben is going to come out there, uh, and do that thing again when that thing seems like it, it may have already taken its toll on him. I mean, he's 35. Uh, and to go out there, I guess, depending on who they match him up with, uh, and take some more of those shots, uh, just so that he can keep saying that, like, you know, he's the guy who goes out there and brawls and, and, and throws them, throws them bungalows, as Rampage Jackson would say. I, I feel like that's the point when it starts to get, um, a little icky for me as a viewer. I mean, if he thinks that, hey, you know, he, he really wants to compete and he's really feeling it again and he walked away too soon and he's got the hunger back, okay, fine. Let him come back and, and try it if he wants to. The concern, obviously, is that what really happened was he decided he needed some money and he could make some in Bellator. Uh, that's when you start to really worry that it's it's kind of exploitative or enabling of, of Bellator uh, to throw him back in there and, and put Chris Lieben through some more abuse because he seems like he can't kind of quite stop himself at this point. Yeah, but I mean, I think the the reason that I said it was unsurprising at the beginning of this round is that we've talked about the difficulties in walking away from the sport before on the podcast and whether or not it is good to try to stay around the gym. And it seemed like Chris Lieben was very involved in coaching and, and being around the gym, I think in San Diego, yeah. you know, where he is now. Uh, and so, you know, whenever you see a, a pro fighter, a retired pro fighter doing that kind of stuff and continually updating us on social media about what good shape he's getting back in, I always feel like the next step will be the coming out of retirement. And that's certainly what happened here with Chris Lieben. And like you mentioned, I think the obvious downside of being the guy that he was in this sport, that like he was primarily known as a guy with a great chin who could take a lot of abuse and hit really hard. And that certainly is an archetype. That's a guy that you can be as a professional fighter. Uh, and I think the more and more we learn about the physical side of this sport and, and the, you know, brain science and stuff where we come to learn that that's a guy you might not want to be or like a guy who's like certainly there's going to be consequences for being that guy. Yeah, or a guy that you can't be for that long. Uh, it You just don't see a, a lot of longevity from the guys uh, who fight that way. And, you know, I was hoping that in, in his case, that being around the gym and, and coaching, that that would be enough, that it would give him a post-fight career, that it would uh, allow him to... to do what he something that he can do well because I I took a seminar from him when he he came here for uh, fights that they had in Missoula and yeah. he, and he, he did I was a, there surprisingly good teacher Chris yeah Lieben. he was he he was and he he's, he made a remark that I think that I said the same thing I might even use surprisingly in there and wished I hadn't almost immediately after I'd said it but he said he actually hears that a lot uh, that people just think of him as like some technique free brawler um, but he he can coach and he has a, a that good ability to impart you know why you're doing what you're doing and and he's, he seemed to be a pretty good teacher of martial arts and so it seemed to me like okay maybe he can just do that um and then you hear him talking about well i was i was in great shape and getting the itch to compete again and i guess if he's going to go ahead and do this i guess i hope that it's that that he just through training and and coaching uh really felt like, man, I, I think I can still do it. I think I, I really want to go out there and compete. I just hope that it's not, I need some damn money quickly, and this is the only way I know how to get a big chunk of money all at once. Yeah, and look, I don't want this whole round to come off super sanctimonious by us. Like, if this is a thing Chris Lieben wants to do, if he feels like he could still compete at that level, and maybe Bellator can can get him some fights against people who are of his uh, you know, relative skill set and, and ability, uh, you know, maybe, and maybe he's got his life squared away and, and this is, this will be a positive thing for him. I don't know. I mean, I don't think we can just completely discount that as a possibility. Although, uh, as the previous eight and a half minutes can attest, I, that's not often the way it turns out, uh, with professional fighting comebacks. But, uh, even though he's the, the recent legal troubles were super, you know, worrying and ugly and makes him a hard guy to, to root for. He's still the sort of guy that like way down deep in my heart. I'm like, man, I hope, I hope he straightens it out. I hope he, he gets it figured out and has a, a positive life from here on out. Yeah. 
So that's a pretty upbeat message to yeah. end this week's co-main event podcast on. Cheers, Leave them everybody. laughing. That's what I always say. Yeah, the, you you do always say that. Let's do uh, just saying stuff, Ben, and then uh, we can get out of here. <coughs> we'll squeeze a few more coughs in, and then uh, we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, I don't know if you saw the Deadspin article out this past week that says uh, Fox Sports 1 is canceling its flagship show, Fox Sports Live. I don't know. Of, uh, essentially... Because uh, it can't get anybody to watch. It's off-brand Sports Center, despite the fact that it has uh, those super affable Canadian hosts. Uh, essentially, the gist of the Deadspin article is that nobody, <laughs> and I mean nobody, is watching Fox Sports One, and that goes for Fox Sports Live. It goes for the creepy ass show that Colin Cowherd has now, after he was basically booted off ESPN Radio for saying racist stuff about Dominicans. Uh, it includes Katie Nolan, who is actually legitimately good and talented, and it kind of sucks to, that she will go down with this ship. Uh, I guess on one hand, it seems like it might actually be kind of good for the UFC, because it seems like the only one of the only things that people are watching on Fox Sports 1 uh, is live UFC programming. However, I guess at this point, I'm just saying, at what point do you start to worry if you're the UFC, that Fox Sports 1 just isn't going to exist very much longer. I'm just saying. Just saying. Well, Jared, I'm just saying, I know you saw your dude, the Black Beast, Derek Lewis, go out there and put a hurtin' on Damian Grabowski on the prelims of this this past fight night. The great Damian Grabowski. <laughs> That's right. Uh, threw some, some heavy shots there, did his weird kind of halfway worm celebration where he pounds on the canvas and then uh, looks like he is kind of making sweet love to the mat. Um, and then afterwards I saw he posted a picture of himself with Nick Diaz where they're both posing for the camera and Derek Lewis is holding up a bottle of Grey Goose vodka. So Chad, I'm just saying we may have lost the cowboy and the dirty bird but... If we have to, you know, basically take our same plot and just insert two new characters uh, in our buddy action movie comedy drama, Derek Lewis and Nick Diaz, we could do a lot worse. You saying Diaz and the Black Beast? Beast and the Diaz? Well, you will work on it. We'll work on it. Uh, I'm just saying, I think there's something there. Beastin 420. What do you think? <laughs> I think we're getting warmer. Anyway. Yeah, okay. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to uh, look ahead to the next UFC event, which I'm blanking on it. Can't think of what it is right now. I know that totally surprises everyone. Uh, cowboy versus Cowboy. Oh, Cowboy versus Cowboy. How could I forget? There can be only one. That's right. Someone's going to get their head chopped off. As for right now, though, we're done. We are through. We are out. Beastias. So like a, that would be like if they were a couple. You know, you have to you have to get through the bad ideas to get to the good ideas. How about Nick and Derek's wild ride, something like that. <laughs> okay, you're going in a different direction, but that's okay. If when you say if you just if somebody said we're going to go over and visit my friends Nick and Derek, I'm going to go immigrant.